red light. I don't know what that means. It means that we are now officially recording. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. We are here. uh, We're back. Our human experience. I'm doing it again. Melissa's unhappy. I hit the record button randomly while we were talking. (laughs) Today, we have the honor of my little sister, Buffy Curtis, joining us. Um, What we want to talk about today and what we'll dive into is kind of scrambling and trying to get that hit that record button because I think we had some good pre-roll conversation here that we'll bring back up. But what we're talking about today is trauma and specifically how trauma manifests itself physically in your body, how you how you can feel it and experience it. And we're going to dive a little bit into defining exactly what trauma is, what different types of trauma are. My personal viewpoint is that a lot of people really, they misunderstand what it is and they view trauma solely as big T trauma. So sexual abuse, horrific car accident, death of a parent, like something major and catastrophic in your life that kind of upheaves everything. And I think a lot of times what we look past is there, there's a spectrum here, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, and Buffy will jump in here and, and uh, school me on all of this stuff as well. But we're going we're gonna to dive into what it is, and we're going to dive into how it affects you physically within your body. And I'm assuming, Buffy, we're going to talk a little bit about how you can use movement and physicality to also help process and work through that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. So let's kick this off. Give a little bit of a background, a little bio about yourself, how you got to where you are now professionally, what it is you do, and why the fuck anyone should listen to you. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, I am currently a pending licensure, licensed creative art uh, therapist. I've been doing this for almost 13 years. That's wow. You're We're old. getting old, Bob. Time flies <laughs> when you're old. <laughs> having crazy experiences. Um, <laughs> so, and I think I was lucky enough to have been exposed very early on to practices that focused on the impact of trauma and the functioning of people. Um, Growing up, I had life experiences that were traumatic. I had many family and associates that also similarly had it. So I was already kind of keyed into and, and recognized that as a sensitivity for the people that I'd be working with. Um, but I was, wonderfully lucky in my very very first clinical job that they kind of threw me in as an ingenue into a heavily focused um, cognitive behavioral therapy track that that looked at trauma Um, and it was scary (laughs) it was also mind-blowing and fascinating to me and I think that that really set the tone for me visualizing myself as a professional and feeling competent in a particular area in mental health since there are so many different avenues people can kind of go down in Mm -hmm. mental health. So a little bit of trial by fire. You just get thrown right into some challenging... Absolutely. They were um, being... I was the youngest person by like 10 years on the team. Um, Because of that, they just decided that Buffy needs as much exposure as possible to the clients. So I spent out of an eight hour day, I probably spent six hours in direct contact with the clients, which is 
extremely yeah. intense. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I want to <laughs> put a pin in that and, and bring some awareness to it because, you know, by no means do I have the depth of experience that you have in working in mental health, but having worked as a program manager for a mental health treatment program for veterans with PTSD and traumatic brain injury, that's a ton of clinical contact. That's a heavy, heavy burden for a therapist to bear. Um, and I think a lot of people that aren't in the field, correct me if you if you think this is wrong or, or inaccurate, a lot of people that aren't in the field or don't have much, much exposure to it, they don't fully understand what a professional in the mental health field needs to do in order to balance their own well-being, especially <laughs> if you're working in really heavy, really traumatic populations where you're going in every day hearing about, you know, in our case, it was, and, and it wasn't me, but our therapists that we were really protective of, they're listening to guys talking about, you know, watching their best friend die in their arms, mm -hmm. about driving through crowds of pedestrians to escape a firefight and running people over, like, like killing, like things mm -hmm. that were just horrific for these young men to have experienced. And as the the mental health counselor, as the therapist, you're you're carrying a bit of that burden every single time you sit with them. So for seventy five percent of your day to be contact hours taking that on, that had to have been formative and challenging, I'd imagine. Absolutely. And there was certainly a, um, a boiling over point that also became a wonderful experience for kind of self-exploration. Um, I definitely, I still struggle with this, but not as much as I did when I started, but I, uh, always had such a strong drive to not ask for help, to not need help. Personally? I, yes. Okay. And I think that um, part of that came from my own life experiences with trauma and feeling like you can't rely on other people mm -hmm. or being told narratives that other people are not trustworthy. I have no idea what you mean. Um, <laughs> I think it'd be helpful for people to hear your stories, being that you are a sibling. Sure, but. sure. So... Um, I, ha I just had it really deeply embedded in me and as a person to be a perfectionist and to not trust or need the help of other people. Um, so it got to a point after months and months and months of being constantly in direct contact with the clients and as a result of this making shit tons of observations, seeing nuance of behavior in the clients that other clinicians could not see because they just simply weren't present with them enough to witness yeah. mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, and simultaneously having the experience of kind of being like, what do you know, green therapist about some clients that, that, you know, uh, therapists definitely get protective of their like favorite people. We have favorites, whether we admit it or not. Hopefully you don't enact it in the way that you, <laughs> <laughs> you engage treatment. I'm going to take care of you, but this other guy sucks. <laughs> right, but people get protective. They get territorial. Um, there's, there's ego that a lot of professionals struggle with um, accepting feedback, even from peers, about how to differently engage clients or differently see clients. Sure. Um, do you, so, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think having trauma in your own life prior to working has made it easier to see that? 
or to communicate with with clients that also have those things? Um, absolutely, absolutely. There's times when um, you know, there's like obvious transference or countertransference that I can feel. It's and it kind of connects with the topic of physicality is that you can feel the sensation of someone else's pain and you can empathize on such a deep level that you feel it in your body um, and you might take on postures or you might take on the same tone or your mirror facial expressions or anxiety. as the clinician you're talking about yeah yeah as a, as a clinician and, and mirror anxiety about topics that the person is um, anxious about discussing mm -hmm. with you so it then becomes a game of you being able to safely identify what it is and see if that feels right for the person kind of laying it out on the table and saying, gee, in this moment, um, I feel like crying with you. And, or in this moment, I feel enraged and I'm wondering what you're feeling right now. Um, kind of calling out things that sometimes people struggle with putting words mm -hmm. to, or even just saying to a person, there are no words for what you're experiencing right and now. I bet that's really helpful for them to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and you touched on a couple things that jumped out at, at me. Uh, one was talking about as a young therapist and having all this exposure and this experience and noticing a lot of things just from the sheer volume of client contact that you had and still second-guessing yourself. So mm -hmm. I think that it, it jumped out, this imposter syndrome jumped out because it's very common in many, many professions, especially when you're new to the profession. And I would think... What being new and also feeling like you had this onslaught of experience to to observe and draw from and your own personal experience, it, it, I'm sure you felt kind of torn with that. How did you rectify kind of getting over that? I know this is a little bit of a tangent of the main topic here, but I'm interested. Uh, first, I had a total meltdown in a staff meeting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, check one. Lose your shit. All right, guys, keep listening. <laughs> so we, went, we uh, at the beginning of uh, an ending of every shift because it was a it was a rehab facility. It was a substance abuse rehab facility. Um, so it's twenty four hours, and you had to let the next incoming staff know like what was any happening? anything yeah. that was happening, anything of note, um, anything of concern in the community, and and you know as usual, there were people with contraband. In the facility, there's always contraband, and and um, I felt very strongly that a particular client was involved in whatever the hustle of contraband was in in the um, program, and his, everybody else seemed to be like, "Oh, he's not like that," and I was like, "He's very sneaky, and he's very secretive." I am with him six hours of the day, and he always seems like he is. You're catching him doing something he's not supposed yeah. to be doing. His reaction to you is always like, what? Um, so. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I didn't just go put something in my room. Sorry, that's a flashback to being a parent. Our, yeah. our oldest, Dylan, did that one time where she like came running back to the kitchen. She just looked at Melissa. She's like, I didn't just put something in my bedroom. <laughs> Ask you. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, and it's the. I think the tipping point for me in the conversation with my peers was that um, somebody made the statement of, "Not all the clients have to like you," 
and it just suggesting that you were lashing out at this guy because he he doesn't like like you and so you're okay and the need to be liked um and i and that was it and i just lost my shit and i was like maybe i don't i don't need this fucking job maybe i don't need to stay in the fucking profession like i lost my shit and I went home and I immediately called um, my childhood therapist <laughs> and said, I am, I made a giant mistake. <laughs> so I need to talk. And I need a great referral because I knew at that point in time um, she had kind of converted into more of a mentor and was no longer, she was retired um, from actually practicing therapy and was a teacher and stuff like that. So I said, could you recommend me to somebody to help me yeah. kind of figure out what the, what the fuck is going on? Um, and then I actually sat down with um, staff and said, like, that particularly I sat down with the woman that hired me and I said, why the fuck did you hire me? Like, I'm, a, I'm obviously a train wreck. I'm obviously no good at this. Like, I, I can't get it right or, or whatever going on and um she won she admitted that they fucked up because probably about three months into me starting there there were some changes in power dynamics and people who stepped down and people who stepped into other positions and and in the shuffle of management they forgot all about me and they forgot that i was brand new in the field (laughs) they forgot that i needed supervision um, and I needed some place to talk about the experiences with. Um, so a huge healing had to do with her recognizing that, recognizing their shortcoming. Um, and then her acknowledging the people in the population who had made progress, even if they were kind of what we call our repeat offenders. They're somebody who'd been to the facility you know, numerous mm-hmm. times. She was able to acknowledge the progress that they had made, presumably because they worked with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that I was the variable in the circumstance with it. So it took me some time to look at, like, well, who do I feel effective with? And the population that stood out was I feel effective with people with histories of trauma. I, un- I know this beast. I understand this beast. Mm-hmm. Um, with any particular type of trauma or just? Um, no. I understood all of the behaviors. I understood the hypervigilance I understood not trusting people I understood having like a tremendous bullshit detector and just feeling like most of the time people are bullshitting you on one end or the other um and like the feeling of even when things are going well the other shoe is going to drop they can't go well forever Mm -hmm. um so it was a it didn't matter what people's traumatic experiences were it the behavior and the feelings mm-hmm. that come with it was what were similar regardless of what caused it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was what I could connect and relate with people on. Um, and then it was navigating like how much of this am I being honest with clients about? So the group that I was thrown into early on didn't let you talk about your experiences at length. That was not the purpose of it. It wasn't a process group. It was a skills group. So it was meant to identify like, these are things that are normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... When you say these are things that are normal, like these are the things that normal people do to get through their life, and this is the skill, the habits you need to build, and this is... Like, what do you mean with... No, that it's normal to have the reactions that people have okay. to trauma. So, like, in the in my experience, I think the best definition of trauma 
that I have come across in all these years is that it is a normal reaction to abnormal events. I like that. I do like that. Yeah. So, you know, the whatever your reaction was in the moment, it served a self-preserving purpose. Um, and it kept you safe in some way, shape, or form, right? Maybe it didn't keep you physically safe, but it preserved your mind so that you didn't fall to pieces. It made it so you could function and do whatever it you had to do. It served you in that moment, for sure. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes, it becomes so deeply ingrained because a person feels like this was the only way I survived, and so this can be the only way I can continue to survive. Um, and so even when people get out of situations that we kind of traditionally think of as traumatic abusive relationships or experiences of sexual violence or physical violence, um, they stay trapped in the traumatic experience because of the coping that came about with it. And, and oftentimes it's the greatest point of frustration for people with trauma is they even if they've had therapy around it they feel like well this is a thing that just never fucking goes away like i can never process it enough it'll never go away um and the challenge is to be able to help a person honor those things that even that they may hate that they do that it that it's served them yeah. And much like anything else that you're going to lose or let go of, you know, it's mourning the death of that. So it's mourning the death of that whatever way of coping that really ultimately isn't helping mm. you or serving you in the purpose. Yeah. So it's embracing embracing your shadow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Embracing mm-hmm. the dark the darkness that's inside of you and accepting it as as a tool as something that like you said that that it did it helped it helped you for a while it allowed you to survive persevere to preserve your own safety to understand the world around you Mm -hmm. when things were incapable of being understood Mm -hmm. um i think that's that's i i I really i wrote down the uh is that a a quote or is that just where where did that come from the trauma's normal reaction to abnormal events if I'm not um, mistaken, that is from my my favorite person, Bessel van der Kolk. If it's not from him, he's used it in one of his trainings, and I'd have to see who it's accredited to. All right. um, but it sounds right very much like something along the lines of, of that I read with regard to him. So when we talk about, for more of a, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, in layman's terms, when we talk about trauma, what... How would we define that? Because when we open this, the show, or even before, I'm not sure when I hit record, <laughs> <laughs> but at one point we were talking about this idea that a lot of people can recognize major traumatic events. They can recognize this person was a victim of sexual abuse or sexual assault, or this person was you know, in a horrific car accident or they're a combat veteran that saw this that and the other thing or they're in an abusive relationship whatever those sort of i've heard them referred to as big t trauma those sort of big things i think are really easily recognized by a lot of people is there another category of trauma are the things that people tend to overlook as traumatic events in their life Uh, i think neglect Mm -hmm. is one of those that often is overlooked 
where people are like, well, nothing really happened to you. You just didn't get enough hugs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You didn't get enough love when you were little. And, and people kind of joke about it. And Say it in I a condescending way. Yeah. Like, I've done that to people in the past. Where I'm like, and so I think there's – that example jumps out into my mind as one that, that maybe doesn't get uh, the same headlines – as the other stuff does. Is there anything else that you would want to put out there in terms of how you, as a professional, categorize trauma, how you, um, what sort of traumatic events are typically overlooked by a lot of people and therefore not addressed and then continue to kind of manifest and shape their behaviors (coughs) and their lives potentially forever? So I think... um... One of the things that's that's uh, difficult to, for people to understand is that trauma comes not just from the big T events, but looking at um, comparative, right? So to give a great example, I worked with children who were coming across the U.S. border that were refugees from Central America. It was not uncommon for them in their home countries to live in a community that for us, our standards here in the U.S., it would be a extreme destitute poverty mm-hmm. that we're not used to. Um, but it's normal there, right? In that community, it would be normative. And in the same thing, in a lot of the communities, violence or having to be aware of the level of violence in your community um is ever present so it's not like just one violent event is affecting you or affecting your life it's the ambiance of always being in a in a location where at any moment something could become violent um so it's that chronic low frequency Mm -hmm. stress that's surrounding that oftentimes people don't recognize until they have some sort of shift in an environment where they can then compare previous experience to present experience and that's where the kind of questioning of things comes up or the all of a sudden being like oh my god like how how did i make it through and 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 sometimes like a survivor's guilt for it um so those sort of kids i just want to make sure i'm i'm understanding what you're saying correctly so because the way they they had to live and it was just normalized the mm-hmm. level of violence the level of poverty this that and the other thing um it's not recognized while they're in it and then when they come here and they're given you know their own bed and clean and warm clothes and food and people are asking them how they feel and taking care of them and, and looking out for them they're like what the fuck is this and then mm-hmm. they start thinking about where the fuck was I? Is, is that kind of the... And then they start to recognize that, wow, that was bad. This is what life could be. Mm-hmm. And and so I guess it begs the question, is it worth getting them out of there? I mean, you had kids that... Um, they didn't really connect to the dots into why their family wanted them to come. Mm-hmm. Um you know, as far as they were concerned, if they, especially if they didn't live in a, a particularly violent um, community, if they were more just kind of in deep rural areas with extreme poverty, um, you don't know that you're that poor until yeah. you see some sort of, mm-hmm. in your life experience, a difference in that. I think one of my favorite little kiddos um, stands out. He was so 
malnourished that he looked like he was maybe four or five years old and he was actually 11 going on 12. Um, so he was significantly stunted growth and very, very skinny. Um, and in the program that I worked at, the kids all stayed in host family like foster homes. So we would have to go in within the first like 72 hours of them being in the home and just see how they're adjusting, make sure that they're aware of like how to get in contact with us and all this and that in the home. And he was with a really fantastic foster mother that I loved. Um, and all he wanted to show me was all the food in the house. Like it was, it was such a tremendous thing to him that he did not care about where do I sleep? Yeah. Where do I play? These are the things that I play with. These are the other kids that I live with. These are the yeah. things that I do. He was like, did you see this food? <laughs> did you see this wall of food? Did you see all of this food? <laughs> We'd be like, yo, homie, this is America. We get people fat. <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, and the foster parent really, I think, was more concerned because she's, she was like, you know, he eats so much, and of which I was there for like two hours, and he had probably four little, not big meals, but four little snacky meals, a bowl of cereal and some fruit and some crackers and, you know, a little smoothie and stuff. And the foster mother, I remember, got tearful with me because she was like, I, do, I don't want to turn him down, but I don't know what his family who lives in the U.S. is, like, financial situation is. I don't know if they could have afford to feed him like sure. this and I don't want him to get so excited and and fulfilled in this way and then be let down yeah. or have it have to go back to some sort of restriction she's like but I also look at him and I'm like oh my god I want to feed you every second of every day to make up for it so you know I think for a kid like that he didn't experience his poverty as being abnormal or traumatic yeah. um Who's to say if in five, six years from now living in the U.S., it is something that he looks back on and, and um, is like, holy shit, like, I I went through that. Yeah. Or, or even looks at maybe health things that come up as a result mm -hmm. of malnutrition and that, yeah. why did the family do something sooner? Or... Yeah, that, I could see that. Um, <clears throat> outside of that last statement, I my, my mind went to... I mean, the quote you, you gave, right? Trauma is a normal reaction to abnormal events. Well, the normal events of his life were extreme poverty and lack of food and lack of resources, right? So there, there was no trauma, technically, to be had there. Mm -hmm. And I'd imagine, I'm just spitballing here, this would be, to me, it would make sense for a lot of people that immigrate to this country from very poor uh, areas of the world and they come here and they reflect back correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like that scenario more often presents itself as like is wow I can be grateful for this look where I've come from versus the other way around if you shipped Johnny Suburban from his three or four bedroom house with his family in wherever you know, to some third world country to live in a sheet metal shack and shit on the floor, mm -hmm. like, that's going to fuck him. Mm -hmm. Like, he's gonna, that's going to be horrible mm -hmm. for that person. It's interesting to look at the, the dynamic of going from this lack of and 
coming to something where there's more abundance and there's more opportunity and there's more care and being able to look back and say, like, wow, I'm so happy that I've made it here and that I have all this stuff to be grateful for. Maybe I just don't understand it fully, but whereas the other person going the other direction, I would assume would have a much harder time looking back and like, well, at least I had all that stuff for the first 10 years of my life. Yeah. And be, you know, yeah. I, feel, I feel like, and then part of that, one of the things that I was thinking about before was in this country, it may just be because of the, the circles that I run in, the people that I listen to and talk to, this idea of trauma and trauma processing, and, and tra- it seems more prevalent, right? We've, we've had an issue with people on medications for anxiety and depression and stuff like that. It's only been rising for the last few decades, obviously made even worse with the pandemic. And I look at those sort of things and I wonder, are we, are we more prone to trauma because of our level of comfort. And, and alongside that, I look at people who are doing things to intentionally create discomfort in their own life. I do it, right? Sauna, cold showers, hard workouts. I don't do a lot of hard workouts anymore, let's be honest, but I used to. <laughs> uh, but people intentionally bringing hardship, which I think is valuable to bring intentional hardship into mm-hmm. your life and to challenge yourself. People doing go ruck challenges and 24 hour Spartan races. like. You don't fucking have to do that. Bro, go sit at your house and, and like eat pizza or whatever it is that you're going to do. Like You don't have to go run in the woods with a bunch of shit on your back for 24 hours. But people are choosing to do that. And I think it's good that some people are because I, I, it seems to me that the degree of comfort that we've created for ourselves that has made us far less resilient to abnormal events in our lives. And then sends where the, us down. Where the low teach, the, that low hum of trauma becomes more significant than it would be otherwise. Perhaps, yeah. I don't know. What are what do you what are your thoughts on that? So I think some of what also comes with the adjustment, particularly for for people with immigration, is that um, the U.S. is so individualistic and material focused. Right, we have material comfort relative to other places. Even people who are poor in the U.S. have considerable more relative physical comfort or or, um, comfort in objects, materials, than places elsewhere in the world. But I think what contributes to resilience for people who are immigrants, even with more kind of big T traumas in their lives, is community and a sense of community and connectedness and sometimes what can be the experience of reflecting back on poverty isn't that like that their poverty was bad, but poverty made life simpler. Mm. And having people, not things, was more important than having the things and not the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can also get, I mean, I have close friends that um, are immigrants here and, and have gotten caught up in consumerism and collecting material things. I would imagine it would be hard not to. It's insanely hard not to. Yeah. I mean, listen, Buffy, you and I didn't grow up in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. We grew up pretty fucking broke. Mm -hmm. We grew up pretty poor. When you and I, Melissa, got our teaching jobs in California, I felt like I won the fucking lottery. 
right? You were talking about teaching, right? Not exactly the most lucrative <laughs> career path yeah. in in the world. And I'm like, oh my god, we're fucking <laughs> balling, and like, you know, and look at how much shit we bought. We yeah. lived out there. It was the first time in my life that I had real disposable income, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and it, it's absolutely difficult to to not fall victim to. I mean, marketing, and, and even more so now, mm-hmm. I mean, marketing is so sophisticated at getting you to believe that you need this thing. When it starts from when you're a kid. Fucking A, it does. Yeah. Right, right away, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's got to be really easy to fall into that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean to, to sidetrack you on that, but yeah, it's absolutely when you when you come from from not having much of anything, it cre- it requires a tremendous amount of discipline to not fall into that. And you know, to me, I was hard pressed to even resist it at all. And then we luckily made a decision to change some stuff in our lives that forced more minimalist principles onto us. I think we realized that concept, that people over things concept, where, you know, that ultimately made us choose to move back to New York. But I think we've we've kept a good hold of that since we've been here. And it's, I mean, you mentioned it and referenced it, and it's actually common even in the U.S. and as a chronic stressor and a chronic trauma. Poverty, being impoverished, is a trauma, a chronic trauma, um, regardless of whether or not it's something that people consciously recognize. The conditions of it, the situation um, that you're put in, um, whether that be through the kind of schooling opportunities that you have, whether that be through the kind of health and wellness opportunities that you have, um, food opportunities having lived in new york city the last 15 years like they they do a lot of lip service new york state does a lot of lip service about um food deserts mm-hmm. and particularly in new york city in the boroughs and i lived in the bronx um which is been consistently the poorest county in new york state for over like a decade or something like that it's always it's the top of the list it's the lowest average income um lowest average educational level and it has, out of all of the boroughs in New York City, it has almost tripled the amount of hospitals. So people are treated, poverty is treated as though it's a sickness and you are sick for being poor. Um, and it just compounds into uh, all these other behaviors for people. And so if people get the chance to get out of the area and experience someplace else, it's, it's almost like a mental bomb for people who go out of the area. You know, you'll, you'll hear people who've gone out of New York City to come up in someplace else in New York and Albany and go to, like, one of the SUNY schools or something or go to Syracuse or go to Rochester and go to school and they're fucking blown away by the price of housing or they're, they're blown away um, by how nice people are. I'm still getting used to people having genuinely nice casual conversation (laughs) with you um you know at the grocery store or or wherever just chatting with you how's your day today like people don't fucking talk to each other like that in new york city um because everybody's just surviving everybody's like just let me hold my shit together to get from work to home or school to home um so i've heard it just 
it jumped out at me as you were saying that. And I, I've, I've heard this reference before. I'm interested to hear your thought. So yes, poverty, I think is one of those. We talked about some ways to define trauma outside of major traumatic big T trauma events that I think are very easily recognized by a lot of people. Um, we talked about uh, negligence being one that often doesn't mm -hmm. get discussed, poverty being one, and all the things that kind of that come along with that, which is lack of opportunity for advancement in your career, for education, for health opportunities, for food, all of these sort of things. Uh, I've also heard reference that just simply living in a city, living in large cities is in and of itself a low level traumatic or anxiety building thing. And I, I would imagine how could it not be? There's just it, so right? many, There's... so many different people's energies to feed off of. There's and, and so, it's just so much. Always. Yeah. And it's why I never really could well, connect with like, like your sister, Melissa, who want, like loves yeah. New yeah. York city and wants to live there. I'm like, that's, that sounds like my fucking nightmare. Like I, I don't want to be in the middle of nowhere, yeah. not near anyone, but holy shit, there's just too, <clears throat> never get away from anyone. Well, and the stimulus too, like just noise and lights and people and think like, Oh, the noise, what? noise, noise. 24 <laughs> seven. Like... We're on the Grinch kick at home still. <laughs> no, it, it's so, I mean, I'm interested. Is that something, would you give that any merit? That idea that just simply living in a large urban population in and of itself can have can be a, a source of low level chronic trauma stress anxiety however you want to phrase it absolutely absolutely um i think of ambient noise as a thing too like you uh, i don't think there was ever a night anywhere that i lived in the bronx where i did not hear one or another kind of siren going multiple times in the night my last year living there i obviously lived directly across from the hospital so that didn't help anything during a pandemic um <laughs> It was very quiet, I'm sure. <laughs> Especially when they chatted over the like speaker phones with each other from one ambulance to another. Like, what you doing, Mike? Um, <laughs> so, but I also think that it's interesting because I feel like the city, and this is personal experience here too, um, part of what attracted me to a city was my own history of trauma. Um, and in two ways and one because it was the, the energy there is something so busy I can do something constantly to distract myself and I don't mm. need to be alone with okay. myself. Interesting. Yeah um, And in the other way was anonymity There's so many fucking people. Yeah. You don't want to know people. Yeah um, Or and, or you don't want them to know you both. Yeah, exactly and so you're, it you're becomes flooded. a haven I think and it's part of I think why people with their traumas who are prone to uh, prone to different kinds of creativity whether it be visual or writing or you know music or whatever it is that they do creatively they're drawn to cities for that reason they can simultaneously take it all in and then take nothing in as well mm -hmm. um, so it's surrounded but them. alone yeah and and it helps them to kind of get that time to be inward in a way so if, I, I, if I don't connect with other people I only have me really to connect with and then what do I produce out of that so I think that the cities attract people with this trauma unconsciously hmm. because of that's the really energy that's there 
Uh, yeah, I've never heard anyone phrase that, but it does it does make sense. You can you can be lost in this flood of people. You know, it's it's similar it made the idea of like information is it responds in a very similar way right how do you how do you get people to not give a fuck about what's actually going on just give them so much information that they can't possibly sort through it and they can't possibly figure out what's happening give them just boatloads of information that yeah. there's no way that they'll ever sort through it and it's very similar that i've never thought about that i really love that if you if you want to isolate yourself and you you don't want to have to connect with anyone. You don't want to have to expose the the struggles that you have personally. Inundate yourself with people, like one or the other, or become a hermit in the middle of fucking nowhere. Mm -hmm. Because everywhere in between, you're more likely to have to have come to grips with it. Yeah. And yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before, but I I really like it, and it's it makes sense to me, you know. Yeah. Something we were talking about before you hit the record button was the pandemic. We haven't touched on that. No. With this kind of low hum continuously. And I was saying that I just read something that was talking about the biggest factor being that there's no end point. Uncertainty. Like, yeah. So I think that that's, I'd like to hear kind of your take on that too. Absolutely. I think the, um, the lack of knowing a lot right so it's not just not knowing the end it's also not knowing the long-term impact it's the right. not knowing um really much about this disease right people people with other diseases that are older that are more well known something like the flu or something like polio or whatever people have a kind of definitive idea of what happens during the phase of the sickness what happens as an afterwards outcome right. um and it gives safety when you can know a little bit more of the parameters. None of that is... Gives the illusion of control yeah. over it. Yeah. 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 Um, I think additionally, you have not just like not knowing the end of this, um, but just the way we present information about anything related to the it's pandemic. Fearful. Yeah. Is done from uh, the same kind of expression that somebody who is verbally abusive to a child or a partner would be right is the constant threat of if you don't i'm going to mm -hmm. um well we talked about that i mean early on we were like really happy with how cuomo was presenting this and talking to mm -hmm. new york and then there was a direct the shift first thing i said to you one yeah. day was like we watched one of his this, interviews yeah. and i'm like he looks like an overbearing parent scolding people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that just, for me, that immediately turned it off. And I think, it, it, you know, I don't want to go off the rails on, on what's going on with the pandemic and stuff. There's just a lot of stuff happening that I just feel, I feel really bad for people. And for me, that sometimes manifests as, as anger and frustration that people aren't recognizing that they're, to your point, being basically being verbally abused in the way that they're being given quote unquote information about what's going on. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that that you brought up initially with this, Melissa, was this idea of uncertainty. And I think take that out of the pandemic. Just uncertainty in general is it can be a traumatic 
thing. Well, and the way this happened was one day you were going to work and the next day everything was shut down, mm -hmm. at least initially. Sure. Right? So it was, your life was flipped upside down. And I think that that, fuck people, like people didn't understand that that could happen in their life. Or well, it, or it they dissolved. didn't at least think about that, that the impact sure. of what that would feel like. It dissolved the illusion of control mm -hmm. that they had over their lives. And the thing that's actually funny is that you still have basically the same control over your life. Mm -hmm. I th the difference is you've relinquished your free will and thought to a lot of the, the decisions that are being made. And different states are, are behaving differently, well, right? And Buffy and not... touched on before, like, how important community was for the kids that were coming over. And now everyone's... And now we've, we've, we, we don't have that, that yeah. right? So I think that if we were able to do things communally or with more people besides the four or five people that might live in your house with you, this would be a different scenario for a yeah. lot of people. And well, and the people that again, everyone has approached it differently. Some people have strengthened their communities and their bonds, and they've you know, and they've become more resilient and closer and more dependent on one another and, mm -hmm. and more real in, in their relationships. But a lot of people have not. Yeah. And it, it, I wanted to to really emphasize and bring it back to this idea as even so, this stands outside of the pandemic. This idea of uncertainty to me, I think, is another one of those things that people don't recognize as trauma and I don't mean uncertainty like oh man I don't know like if my husband's gonna get me the present I want for our anniversary sort of thing mm -hmm. or I, I'm talking about prolonged chronic uncertainty about major things in your life mm -hmm. your job like your you know mm -hmm. your livelihood whatever's coming in your health um I we talked a little bit before we got on the call about my time in um in the Marine Corps and I remember before we came home, we just had the usual fucking runaround where it's like, you're going home next week. And it's like, nah, just, it's in two weeks. Just, okay, two more weeks from there. Two more. And then, like, mm -hmm. this went on for, you know, a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And people just got more and more anxious and pissy and angry. And, and I was just like, it's this degree of uncertainty about, like, what the fuck is happening? And, and feeling like you're out of control with those mm -hmm. things that can weigh on people. And, and I think what the pandemic has shown is like, now you, you're welcome. You all get to carry this <laughs> uncertainty with many, many, many things. Mm -hmm. When will I see my family again? When can I go back to work? When can I get a job? When, like, when will I be quote unquote safe? When will my kids to go, go to school? Yeah. When will my kids go back to school mm -hmm. again? When, you yeah. know, all of these sort of things. And the gaslighting that goes with it too, right? So you have positions of authority who have who have done gaslighting. I think of um, the CDC. The CDC is again to use that example of like the abusive partner that is telling people one thing and then telling them another thing and saying like, "Oh, I never said that before." So you know, at the very beginning beginning of all this pandemic stuff, I remember. Um, I traveled to, to Cuba last February for my birthday, um, and I was struck by all of the precautions that Cuba already had in place. Mm -hmm. um, and mind you, the, the U.S. had been knowing, I had been seeing it on social media since like January-ish about what was going on with China and whatnot. Um, but it was interesting, uh, uh, like the time to get through the immigration was like quadrupled. 
normally it takes like 20 minutes to get through uh, um, customs or whatever in Cuba, and it was like an hour and a half or something like that for me mm-hmm. to get through it. And then to come back to New York and have them still be acting like, eh, it's, there's nothing. You're good. Mm-hmm. There's no problem. Um, it's not here. It's not going to come here. You know, and, we won't allow it in. <laughs> right. but And not even so much as like a questionnaire of have you had these symptoms. You know, I mean, I feel like we did more for Zika when Zika was a thing. And then ultimately, um, you didn't hear anything about Zika for like six months later <laughs> yeah. um, with it. But, you know, the C- I distinctly remember the CDC saying you don't need to wear a mask. It is not um, airborne. It's pointless. It's counterintuitive to wear a mask at the beginning because it was something that staff where I worked at had asked, should we be wearing a mask? Everybody in China is wearing a mask. Should we be wearing a mask for this? There's something they know we don't. (laughs) And and our medical director for the facility that I worked at was like, no, 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 counterintuitive. Don't wear a mask. As soon as the CDC changed their mind, our medical director changed their mind. Mm. Um, and then everybody proceeded to act as though they had never made the counter statement before of this being unnecessary. So I think that that contributes to uncertainty because then that makes people question their own judgment and did they really hear it right or were they misinterpreting information? And Well, and it goes back to that abusive or negligent parent mm-hmm. that... You're not. supposed to be able to trust. Yeah. We're supposed to be able to trust these people, and now we can't. Yeah. Or we're not sure we can. Yeah. I want to make sure. Uh, I think I love every direction we've gone on the conversation so far, or with the conversation so far. I want to make sure that we get into the, the crux of what we want to talk about today, which was now that we have, we've kind of wrapped our head around the fact that there is, there's big T trauma, easily recognized things. There's this idea of, um, circumstantial trauma depending on where you came from where you are now uh, how those things change I love that the quote of a normal reaction to abnormal events so abnormal would be pulling you out of whatever you are accustomed to right Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's we touched on some of the things that are often overlooked that, that are more chronic low level continuous hum traumatic influences we'll call them um so I'd like to shift now to talk a little bit about how this stuff manifests itself in our physical bodies and things that we can notice about that, that, that we're doing. I think a lot of times we live in a culture where our immediate choice in many cases is to numb mm-hmm. the feeling, whatever that feeling is, mm-hmm. right? Not just with trauma, but with anything, you know, we just... Give me the pill, give me the booze, give me the Netflix, whatever the fuck it is that, that I numb myself with, right? Um, and, and so I think a lot of times there's likely warning signs or little indicators that are happening in people's lives that are either being ignored or covered up with some sort of symptom management, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? let's talk a little bit about what some of those things are and then... Also, once we know what they are, how to kind of recognize where it might be coming from, what sort of ways can we use our physical, our physicality to manage how we, how we carry trauma, how we cope with it 
in a, in a way that's positive and not uh, more destructive. So we, um, we've talked about this experience before a little bit, and I'm going to mention it, that um, I, I got to be a guinea pig at a, <laughs> at a panel presentation probably about six years ago now, maybe a little more than that. Um, at the Expressive Therapies Summit, which is held every year in New York City, and includes all of the all of the people who fall under the umbrella of creative arts therapists, which are dance therapists, music therapists, um, art therapists, and uh, like creative writing therapists. Okay, so is that basically everyone outside of the talk therapy type? They'll, what you... most people think of as as mental health. Right. Oh, and drama therapy. I almost forgot drama therapy. A drama therapist will kill me if I forget that. Um, <laughs> so they're, you know, they're not either they're not traditional talking psychotherapy or the talking that's done in it is done in a very intentional and thoughtful way in conjunction with whatever the medium is. So um, for the purposes of that panel, I had to be the test subject to the, the different... Um, backgrounds demonstrated assessments for their given specialty. So one of them was a fabulous, fabulous art therapist or, uh, whose name I believe was Lin Lyndon Moog, um, who's based out of Brooklyn. And she, prior to becoming an art therapist, had been like a dancer for 15, 20 years or something like that, traveled internationally with a troupe or whatever. Um, I just felt fantastic with her right away when I saw her because she was dressed in some pleather leggings with a, I think it was a silver vinyl mini skirt and like a smashing pumpkin style t-shirt and some fuzzy Yeti boots. Like she just, she, I looked at her and I was like, yes. Yes, <laughs> queen. There's something about her. I, I was like, you are exactly what everybody thinks of when they think of a dance therapist. <laughs> um, but so she did the quickest thing as, uh, her, as part of her assessment, which was she just asked me to stand up and sit down in a chair um, a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And... I think I went into it going, well, well, what the hell would, or maybe she'd be looking if I have like an adaptation, if I have difficulty getting in and out of the chair or whatever, do I need to like push myself up or my, are things creaking and popping? Like, sure. <laughs> what is it exactly that she's looking at, um, to assess? And after I sat down, um, somebody else in the audience who was curious had said, well, what do you what kinds of things would you get from that assessment? Like, what would you pull out from that assessment? Um, and she automatically had said, if Buffy was a client of mine, I might orient some questions around whether or not she's experienced sexual trauma. And I was fucking floored. Um, I was floored and I felt naked in front of everybody because that is part of my life experience. Um, and she proceeded to explain to others in the crowd, like what it was about my body, my posture that would lead her to question somebody about an experience like that. Hmm. Um, so she explained like the tendency of people, particularly with sexual abuse to guard like the pelvic area or to sit in a way where they're 
kind of hunched in a hollow hold um, position that's protective of the pelvis. And it makes sense if you're, you know, kind of curling in a ball to um, protect yourself with it. Um, and that that also like impacts how you stand up and sit down, right? So you're always in like an awkward kind of tilted pelvis position to keep your pelvis as far away from other people as possible. And I was just, I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> um, and I think just got me more into looking into some theory uh, about movement and, and dance and then also getting connected with material from Bessel van der Kolk, who um, is probably most well known for his book, The Body Keeps the Score. And he talks about these mind-body connections and in particular how they're severed um, for people with traumatic experiences. And, and there's a lot of time of um, feeling disconnected between those two things. Um, and so the work has to be both physical as much as it has to be verbal and cognitive because um, he also talks about, um, oh, I'm not thinking of the right wording of it right now, but basically speaking, like a, having a speechless horror is the experience of trauma, where talking is only going to get you so far, particularly if the experience happened like prior to the age of seven, where your verbal skills are really not that great anyways. Um, so you can't even actually verbally express those experiences. It's, it's just too deeply embedded pre-verbally for you to do that. And so movement becomes part of the healing in conjunction with the talking. So now some of the common practices that have been born out of his, um, of his studies and his, his literature are probably what most people think of of EMDR where you're incorporating something that's a kind of like cross-lateral movement and grounding techniques while you're doing trauma processing. So you would, you would learn the grounding techniques and you would learn the cross-lateral movements to do so that eventually when you get to the point where you're able to do a narrative, you can engage those movements to help get you through the narrative without having a horrible reaction or having a panic attack or something like that while you do it. So it helps to manage the physiological response that you would have from just verbalizing mm -hmm. what happened? I think a lot now it's started to, so people kind of started looking at it with like the fidget spinners for people who um, experience anxiety and now it's turned into uh, Lat, like tapping, tapping yeah. talk to people about tapping on your face or tapping on your shoulders. Um, I remember hearing about that when I was at Warrior Salute. Um, that some of the guys were really connected to that, and some were like didn't. And, yeah. Some people do it inherently, anyways, and especially when you see. I think of how many clients I've had with traumatic experiences that um, can't actually sit tolerate really sitting still to talk about even symptoms related to their experience mm -hmm. whether or not they're talking processing about the actual trauma itself or if they're talking about their experiences in life elsewhere is you know there's always the like tapping or 
yeah, rubbing the chair. They're just fidgeting and the, they're to begin with, just naturally. Person. So yeah. it, it behooves, I think, therapists to then incorporate movement into the process, especially with somebody that you know has those big T trauma experiences, or even if you're aware and the client is self-aware enough of their chronic trauma experiences um, to be able to do that. So like working with the kids that I worked with, um, if we didn't engage in art making tasks, we would engage in doing something out in the community. So I frequently would have adolescent boys that weren't very comfortable talking about their feelings, regardless of their traumas. Uh, <laughs> and so our sessions turned into like, well, show me how to kick a soccer ball. I'm horrible with a soccer ball. Like, how, how do you move this coordination? And so the therapy actually becomes mastery over one's body and doing something like being able to, I'm going to fuck it up and say dribble a soccer ball. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's not right. You don't dribble a soccer ball. Sure <laughs> with your feet. Um, but somebody gaining mastery over their body in that way is profound when you've been through a traumatic experience especially one of the big t traumas with abuse or sexual abuse wherein your body bodily autonomy was violated so it doesn't feel like a space that you have ownership of it doesn't mm. feel like a space that you have a right to treat any kind of way because it's everybody else's. It's that person who broke the boundary and it's not yours. Hmm. Um, so I think people underestimate, and a lot of therapists that I've worked with underestimate the power of letting a client show you mastery in something that's not talking. And they don't have to talk about their, their trauma or their experience in order to get value from the therapy. Uh, I love that, that yeah. Do you find that that opens up the ability to have more discussions a lot of times down the road? Like once they've kind of, they've demonstrated that physical mastery, they've been able to make a connection on, on that level. Does it, how, it, does it eventually progress past that where you're still including physical practices and having some more, I guess, deeper open conversations, more traditional discussions or ther therapeutic chats? Sometimes, no. Okay. Sometimes the therapy remains on a, from the outside on a seemingly superficial level. Um, and this is one of those things where like I, when I became a supervisor for other therapists, I had to like remind them of this all the time and checking your ego that you may not ever have the answers to the questions that you have of your client, um, is it necessary to have the answers to those questions? And the hardest question, question can also be, am I being effective? And I think when we tune into our bodies as a therapist, because you can feel um, your client's feelings in the session if you're present enough and attuned with them, mm -hmm you can feel whether or not you're being effective. So the one of the young men that, that we did just soccer sessions most of the time, I think once or twice he, he talked about some other things that still were not related to 
his experiences, um, but weren't soccer related. They were more just kind of run of the mill, like school day or yeah. something. Um, but you could feel that he looked forward to that time, and he could that he genuinely gained value from the time that we spent doing those things, even if we didn't talk about anything. Anything. Yeah. Of of quote unquote significance. It was significant to be present. That's cool. Um, so when we're thinking about you know people teachers parents things like that that i mean as a parent it makes me really nervous to think about um someone hurting our girls and you know i i hope it's never a bridge that we ever even have to cross or consider but when we talk about things that we can notice in someone's physical body, we kind of touched on um, you, like the assessment, you standing and sitting in a chair, a little bit of postural mm-hmm. stuff. Um, are there, is there anything that people could look at as kind of red flags or is it really hard to do that in terms of being able to look at a loved one or a student of yours and, and start to recognize, like, man, there's something there's something here to at least draw some attention to it and, and notice? Um, or is it really just something that comes about as, a, as an assessment with a trained professional and that's really the only way you can know? I mean, if someone just has poor posture and nothing's ever, nothing bad has ever happened, we live in a society, a lot of people type on computers and spend a lot of time kind of hunched over so they have this kind of caved in shitty posture already and maybe that's not relevant to anything that's happened to them, but maybe it is. Uh, is there anything there that people can be aware of or even notice in themselves, right? After we've mentioned it a couple of times with the, with this past year being, you know, the, the pandemic, um, people being able to notice like, man, I'm, I, I, this hurts or that hurts. Or I notice that my, that I'm carrying myself differently. Um, is there anything generally speaking that people could look for or be attentive of? I think it's, it's usually most obvious in, in kind of patterns of themes of whatever. So like a pretty consistent theme that might perk your ears up and, and maybe ask, make you make, ask questions about yourself or somebody close to you is, you know, how did they respond to unwellness? You know, what, are they the person that does things for themselves, whether that's go to a doctor or, or gets more rest or starts hydrating more, or has like, you know, um, I think of, of one of my ex's mothers who had a tea recipe for a, any ailment that you could possibly have, like all the home remedies she had, she had it. Um, or are they the person who just tries to kind of punish themselves or seemingly from the outside punish themselves with illness, like just suffer through it and do nothing, take nothing. I have to feel this, uh, um, and just push through without some compassion for themselves. They, mm. they may be capable of giving to other people. So if they're, you know, if you're a parent and you push through those things without doing something that's self-caring, um, but you would do it for your kids or you would do it for your partner or whatever, that might be a moment to reflect on why do I not feel like I should take care mm. of myself? Because it mm. often like I mentioned before, for particularly with people with, with um, severe chronic traumas, they don't feel like they 
deserve care um, Hmm. or Hmm. attention to their needs. And then I think also um, not necessarily trauma, but maybe more chronic stress situations. If you have a person who frequently finds themselves in kind of accidental things, like whether they're very clumsy, dropping things, or they always seem to have like a random bruise from bumping into things, or um, they're a person who frequently speaks about just like bad luck circumstances. I've had this bad luck, I had this bad luck. Um, Those are kind of, particularly when it comes to clumsiness, I think of things that stand out. Clumsiness with children a lot of times can be a sign of, of a very distracted mind. Um, which may or may not be due to something major going on or just a chronic low level of stress that's that's there. And so they're less mindful about what they're engaging in. Um, there's definitely some age groups of kids, like toddlers and stuff, where it may not be that they're not mindful of it. It's that they don't care or they don't know the consequences sure. of it. But, you know, when you're getting to kids that are five, six, seven, eight years old where they've been socialized a little bit more to be, you know, pay attention to where you're walking or what you're doing and stuff. And they're still very absent-minded. Um, those can be some signs that there's, there's something there to mm-hmm. maybe look at. Um, and particularly I think with little, littler kids or younger people, you're not going to be able to get to what's going on in a direct way. Yeah. The conversation is always going to be something kind of metaphorical um, to get there, in part because of just not having the sophistication of emotional language that adults sure. have. Um, although you can also have an adult who, depending who doesn't upon, have that. Yeah, depending upon when, when trauma happened in their life, they may lack the emotional sophistication. You know, I think about the gentleman that I have Friday breakfasts with. <laughs> who, you know, was unfortunately incarcerated with adults at the age of 16 and spent 25 years incarcerated. So he was raised in a prison um, and emotionally interacts as a 16-year-old with me. So maybe a little bit younger than that. Mm. Um, So even though he's older than that, I have to remind myself to engage with him as if he was... You know, one of the adolescents that I played soccer with, how would I engage that kid? How am I engaging this kid in front of me? Interesting. Mm-hmm. So when we look at, obviously, we've talked about some of the chronic low-level stressors that can produce these sort of, that can produce trauma in people's lives. And a lot of those are glossed over and not looked at. Basically, everyone that listens to this, not basically... Everyone that listens to this has lived through the last year um, and, and has experienced this in some way, shape, or form. The vast majority. I'm sure there's some exceptions out there. People that lived in the middle of nowhere, completely happy with their life, and nothing really changed for them during this. But for the most part, everyone was touched by this pandemic and negatively impacted it for I mean, for however long this continues to go on, but for at least the last almost year, year mm-hmm. right? Um, what are some things they're not, I'm not, I'm assuming that you're not necessarily suggesting that everyone needs to go out and seek a professional. I'm mm-hmm. sure some people do. 
uh, but everyday people, what are some things that they can do that is physical with themselves that can help them to manage and cope with some of the stress that comes about from an event like this that, that kind of up, upends your life in one way, shape, or form? I think the first step is in acknowledging um, when you're numbing. You mentioned the kind of like Netflix marathons, and I think that people think of those passive activities as being a way to cope. But if you find any activity that your brain is just going blank and you're losing swaths of time when you're doing it, whether it's on social media or whether it's, um, you know, even exercising too much getting to a point where like mm -hmm. that is what you're trying to do is just yeah. forget that this is going on and so you're kind of panic pumping iron or something sure yeah well before um, i mean honestly like as you said that prior to anything happening with the pandemic it was it's one of the things that started us moving further and further and further away from really wanting to do group exercise in the way that we had started it because for for us it started as the practiced hardship that I mentioned earlier in our discussion, which is, I was like, this is great. People don't do hard shit, by and large. When we first opened our gym, it wasn't as common. There wasn't all these, the, like the Tough Mudders and the Spartan races, they weren't as popular, right? Go Rucks, all those sort of things. CrossFit affiliates weren't around every corner. So people didn't do a lot of physically hard stuff. And a lot of the people that came through our door had never done anything physically hard. And so... I think there was a lot of value in exposing them to that. And as time went by and the popularity of, of high intensity models of fitness got bigger and bigger and more people were exposed to it, that we started to have conversations around, you know, this is becoming the new pill. The bar. This is becoming the bar. Yeah. This is where I come to get fucked up and forget about my life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Instead of a place where I come and get healthier to live my life, right? Right. I'm living to work out instead of working out to live. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm tuning out. I'm not cherishing what my body can do and embracing it and feeling it and feeling empowered, which we saw a lot early on. People really, truly empowered with what they were doing. Instead, instead we saw people masking their unhappiness and masking their lives and to your point numbing just tuning their brain out and people would verbal started verbalizing it mm -hmm. i just want to come and just tune out mm -hmm. and not think about what i'm doing and i'm like jesus fucking christ like right. worst time to do that with some heavy shit yeah, yeah exactly right <laughs> um and i think so yeah i'm glad you brought that up as a thing that is just automatically assumed to be a positive oh you work out it's good for you it, Yes, Maybe. and mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're doing it in a particular way, it can also be a negative influence on your life. Mm -hmm. And it's a fine line because two people could be doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And one of them is a thousand percent present and they're part of it and it's life-changing and helpful for them and the other person is just tuning out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I didn't mean to sidetrack you there, but yeah. The, so we talked about awareness around numbing behaviors, whatever that is, whether that's mindlessly eating, watching TV, exercise, drinking, 
taking your pill, taking sleeping pills to go to bed every night sort of thing, um, anything that numbs you. So when you're recognizing those things, it's then um, what they kind of call in the DBT world, opposite activation. So doing something that's the opposite. So trying to um, engage in something that's not necessarily something that you feel skillful at or okay. not something that is easy to tune out and mm -hmm. just mentally veg when you're doing it. Um, I think of it's it's funny to me because early on in the pandemic, the sh like the flour and yeast sort shortage of everybody wanting to make bread. <laughs> um, but it was a it's actually perfect. It's perfect as uh, a coping mechanism for trauma. It's repetitive motion. It's tactile. It's also learning a skill, a new skill. You have um, to pay attention. You have to pay attention. You have yeah. to be mindful of the process, of the weight, of you know every step of the way until you make the bread and then you also get the enjoyment of eating the bread when you're done there you go um, that was something that as you as you're mentioning it, i'm like oh yeah that does make sense with the bread i hadn't really thought much about that but even prior to the the pandemic i would often talk to people about kind of coming back to this exercise thing i was talking to people about getting back into jujitsu and as i got back into there i'm like i feel like shit like I feel beat up and sore all the time. Not necessarily a great health choice for me, right? My joints hurt, back hurt sometimes, but it 100% was something that required my attention. So when I was there, I was there. So I think that that's a great point. So, the, so, so what I'm hearing is this opposite activation is, is basically choosing some sort of activity or pastime that requires attentiveness. Forces you to be all in. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. requires you to focus and be present and aware of what you're doing. So, mm -hmm. like juggling chainsaws, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and hopefully that it's something tactile in nature. So, like, they have done um, a number of studies. I want to say Dr. Bruce Perry um, is a psychoneurologist that's done a number of studies on this. Um, on how certain tactile sensations activate, uh, like calming, and get us into the same kind of state that in, that what people traditionally think of with like meditation and they increase GABA levels and things like that at the same rate. So um, people who are fans of textile arts, crocheting, knitting, sewing, embroidery, um, beading because it's something that requires both sides and it requires you know, visual spatial. Um, painting can be like that. Cooking can be like that. Um, going out and having like a, a ritual that you do in a day with, that somehow involves movement and also touch. So um, you know, in grad school we had to do an assignment where we had to be doing something mindful and take like a memento in the mindful experience and mine was to walk around this island that was near my house and go to the seashore and then go pick out um i picked out 10 seashells at a time and then do some breathing exercises on the shore and then head home and that was it and eventually i made someplace i have a necklace that's made out of shells 
from that experience. Um, but doing things very intentionally and as much tactile as you can involve in the activity as possible so that you have to be connected with both mind and body at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, since that is the, the key thing that's missing for people with trauma uh, is that mind-body connection and tolerating being in the body and even tolerating pleasant sensations. Sure. So I think that's a weird thing that people will, again, kind of gloss over that I know it's something that I personally struggle with is being okay with being happy and joyful and feeling like that's something that's okay for me to feel mm -hmm. right and I think that's a that's a a struggle for more people than than I think most of us recognize is that that's part of it too it's not just being okay with discomfort because certain people depending on their their background depending on what sort of things they've experienced in their life what sort of traumatic events they may have come across they may be fucking amazing at burdening discomfort mm -hmm. especially physical discomfort you know i think about two clients that we had at the gym who both talked about uh doing a go rock and one of them had done a bunch of them and the other one had never done one before and the first the first one that had done a bunch i'm like you absolutely shouldn't do that it's the fucking last thing you need to do you know how to suffer physically through it you gain nothing from doing that. Nothing. That's numbing you. The other person, you should fucking do that. You're soft as shit. You will gain a ton of perspective from that. And so, and I think that's indicative of, of how the exact same experience can be mm -hmm. valuable to one person and worthless, maybe even detrimental to mm -hmm. another. Right? And... I just did like it just immediately made me think of that and and the the joy being able to accept accept joy. I mean, I am one of those people that will accept discomfort for a long time. I will endure it infinitely and have a really hard time with sitting with joy and sitting and truly being happy. And, and the times that I have experienced it, it's been it's wonderful and it's amazing and then it makes me it makes me think about how much of my life I've missed out not doing that not having both both are necessary mm -hmm. right we can't know what joy really feels like without sorrow you know we have to have both sides of those coins but I I think that a lot of people that have traumatic backgrounds will shift towards one and more at least in my opinion more often than not towards the dark i don't know if you've seen that professionally um oh yeah i would say not, that that's, that's that's fairly fairly normative that people with um traumatic experiences don't really accept joy in their life and and part of it is the feeling that it's impossible to feel this regularly so why you know why why even tempt myself with right. it right why give myself the opportunity to feel this cause when it's just going to be taken away anyways it's yeah. that other shoe dropping um and i think when you're in that point so you talked i i, I love this idea of this opposite activation i've never heard it phrased that way but it's such a great it's such a simple tip and i think that's like the, the one thing that i want people to walk away from this if you find yourself 
the everyday person. Sure, we're talking about you know people that you've actually worked with in a professional setting, but for the everyday person that's listening, bring some awareness to the times when you're numbing yourself with food or technology or whatever it is, whatever your drug of choice is, right? Your tool that you use to turn off. Recognize when that's happening. Shift gears into something physical, preferably tactile, that's engaging your mind and your body at the same time. And it doesn't have to be any particular thing is what I'm hearing, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that, that you are interested in or maybe you don't even know if you're interested in it but you're like fuck it let's try it right and and engage in that thing in order to shift gears i think it's also important to point out that you're not suggesting never watch tv again or never have a glass of wine again or eat ice cream the difference is and i know melissa talks to her clients about this sort of stuff all the time is be there mm-hmm. be in it Enjoy that glass of wine. Enjoy the company that you're with. Enjoy whatever it is that you're doing. It, it, you're going to put a movie on? Laugh. Pay the fuck attention. Why are you looking at your phone? Why are you looking at a fucking Instagram feed while watching a movie mm-hmm. and listening to music? Mm-hmm. You can't possibly be paying attention to any of those things fully. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so it's not about any of those things inherently being bad. It's about are you actually engaged? When they get to that point of being mindless. Yeah. Are you actually engaged with what it is? And what an amazing red flag that every single person listening can have to look at their own behavior and say, am I doing it? I fucking do it. Me too. Right? I I do it. I'll put something on if I'm just not feeling life. I mean, there's been plenty of times where you went to bed, Melissa, before me, and I'm like, oh, just... I'm going to watch one more and I'm like, well, just fucking mindlessly watch three episodes of something random. Or I, then she's like, what'd you, how'd you find this show? And I'm, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just picked it. I'm like, I don't know. It just fucking rolled into it. Right? It's like, <laughs> it went to the next one. And you know, our life makes it easy to do that. Mm-hmm. It just does. We have plenty of opportunities to tune out. Um, you talked about breath work a little bit as well. I don't know if you find that to be a, a valuable thing for people. Uh, I find it to be, I have found it to be valuable for me for really feeling and bringing, like just feeling my body respond to various types of, of breathwork protocols. Um, you know, I, I would add in, if you can do any of this out in nature, mm-hmm. in the sun, like yeah. reconnecting with just circadian rhythms and, you know, just, feedback you're getting from nature yeah and i think that goes to what you mentioned before about overall people in in urban environments doing more poorly so that that's deeply connected with the lack of natural spaces and green spaces um and they've got plenty of studies that show that just overall health outcomes are significantly worse for people in urban areas because of that lack of connection to nature and spaces where they can where they can do that where they can get biofeedback and hang out chill yeah um put your feet in the grass putting your feet in the grass is something that i told a coworker of mine the other day that is the thing that i'm looking most forward to when it's not freezing snow. outside put your feet in the snow anymore <laughs> Um, cause I haven't been barefoot in the grass in 15 fucking years and it's going to feel a little weird, but it's also going to feel 
fantastic. Yeah. There's definitely been some awkward uh, anxieties that have been embedded in my head, like, you're going to step on a needle. <laughs> <laughs> the earth is going to kill you. <laughs> but I look forward to it, and yeah. And then, and absolutely, the bio, the biofeedback touch. Not just with nature, touch with other people. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, again, you want to talk about a big thing that a lot of people are burdened with right now is the, like the lack of physical touch with other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I know some of the people in in our friend circle and everything, we've made it a point, like, we're going to hug it out, man. Mm-hmm. Every time we see each other. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's there's some simple things. That, it's also good for your microbiome to hug people. It is. <laughs> there's some simple things that people can do in their life to, to really yeah. just be in it. And I think that's the that's the thing that I'm most concerned about when I look at something like this past year, because we were already trending in a direction of isolation and in a direction of disconnect from one another and numbing. We were already doing these things mm-hmm. in droves, right? And this just cranked that motherfucker up. You know, it, it 10xed, 100xed those behaviors for a lot of people. And... The, the backlash of that, it's why I wanted to talk to you about it. The backlash of that is going to be seen for a long, long time mm-hmm. after this. And I think people can recognize that there, there are some things you can do right now, today, to, to start to stave that off and start to kind of bring yourself back from whatever hole you've let yourself slip into. And we had a lot of these conversations early on with clients uh, on Zoom calls and things like that and talking to some of them about something as simple as, you know, when everything was locked down, there was nothing open. People were coming on to some of these calls and I'm like, bro, looks like you haven't fucking changed your clothes. I've seen the same sweatpants and same t-shirt every single call that you've been on. Like, what are you doing? And they're like, you know, they're sleeping on their couch and then waking up and eating breakfast on their couch and working from their computer on their couch, it's like, go wash your ass, <laughs> shave your face, and put some different clothes on. But just doing those sort of things, like feeling that the razor against your skin, mm-hmm. going it, like washing yourself, go see someone. Like, and at that point in time, early on, we didn't really, I don't think anyone was really open to those sort of suggestions, but, um, and we were all being cautious, rightfully so. But those sort of things are really, really valuable and often overlooked. Um, but yeah, I I appreciate you coming on, Buffy. Um, is there anything else that you want to leave anyone with before we before we sign off and go eat some yummy dinner? No, thanks for having me. I would love to come back and chat some more. <laughs> oh, we will have you on again. And um, again, I'll put some stuff in the show notes that Buffy brought up. Uh, I definitely want to emphasize this idea of opposite activation. So bring some awareness to your day-to-day. Notice, are you tuning out? And if so, why, how, and just recognize it. And then come up with a strategy for a way to address it. Something that you can do differently when that comes up. I know I'm going to bring some more attention to this uh, for myself. And I hope you guys do as well. Thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you guys all next time.